Let's open up to Revelation chapter 16. Kept my promise. Got through an entire chapter in one Sunday last week. Won't do that again today, but we can make some progress. We're in the latter part of the tribulation now. As the chronology here is moving along, I believe we're toward the end of the tribulation. God's wrath is getting ready to be poured out upon the world. We are at the end of the seventh seal judgment, toward the end of the seventh trumpet, or we are seeing the seventh trumpet judgment unfold into the seven vile judgments. Chapter 15 is a prelude to this pouring out of God's wrath. The word where the King James, the King James translates vile from a Greek word that means vile. It's where we get the English word vile. It goes back to the Greek file. So it's an accurate translation. This is not a bowl here. This is a, it's like a bottle with a narrow neck that's poured out upon the world. And then we get into chapter 16, where I want to begin today. We've seen the um, song of the tribulation saints. We've seen the temple thrown open in heaven. The glory of God filling the temple. No one can approach the temple, even in heaven in their glorified bodies, until these seven plagues are fulfilled. It's almost a step back and watch out. Matthew and I were talking after the service last week and he brought up a good point. This aspect of God's character that makes Him righteous, we have no part in it. We have no part in it. It's not for us. It's for the wicked. And so there's no need to approach. Step back and watch out. That's the imagery there. In Christ Jesus, we have not been appointed to wrath. This is a side of God's character we won't see And we don't have to see. We don't need to see. But yet it's there. It's what makes Him righteous. And as a result, we can praise Him for it. And we can praise Him that in Jesus Christ, we can escape this. Chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And so these seven angels come out of the temple following the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And then that temple is filled with the glory of God. And then a voice from the temple says, go and pour out the vials. That voice, of course, is God Himself. Out of the glory of God, the command is given, go pour out my wrath. This is a mustering A divine order. And then we'll see as the chapter progresses, it's carried out. Notice here the phrase, wrath of God. Wrath of God. This is not the wrath of men. This is not the wrath of the devil or the principalities and powers of wickedness. This is the wrath of God Himself poured out upon the world. And His wrath is not drawn out over a long period of time. His wrath is quick, in quick succession. And I believe these things will transpire at the end of the 70th week of Daniel very quickly. Probably 
not even much more than a matter of weeks, maybe days. These type of judgments, when these type of judgments come, the earth and its life cannot sustain itself very long. Jesus said in His Olivet Discourse, unless those days be shortened, no flesh will survive. So these have to be quick and toward the end of the tribulation. In verse 2, we have the first vial. Of these seven, four of them resemble plagues that came upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. So there's no reason to believe here that these things are anything but literal. There's no reason to believe it's some deep, dark secret that hints at something else. This wasn't the case in the days of Pharaoh, even though men who think they're scholarly want to explain it away with this or that. There's no reason to think these things are not as literal as they were in the land of Egypt. These are the seven last plagues. The ultimate plagues. Everything else has been just a figure or a type. Verse 2, the first vial. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. A noisome and grievous sore from God. There's a couple of things that are worth mentioning here. Number one, this must be late in the tribulation. This must be late. Why? Because it falls upon people who have the mark. This is not in the beginning. This isn't when Antichrist is rising to power through peace and deceiving the world and leading Israel to believe He's their Messiah. This is after He reveals Himself at the midpoint of the tribulation and sits in the temple of God proclaiming Himself to be God and unleashes His wrath upon the nation of Israel and the remnant of her seed. It's long after that. These are upon men who have the mark and have had it for some time. So this is late in the tribulation. If you remember, we've talked about this before. Um, in chapter 13, verse 5, we're told that the beast, the Antichrist, that power is given unto him, absolute power is given unto him for 42 months. Okay? That is three and a half years. The last half of the tribulation. And then when you go to 11, verse 3, we're told that the two witnesses are given power and authority to prophesy a thousand two hundred and sixty days, which is roughly three and a half years. We talked about how Daniel's 70th week, that tribulation period, is divided in half. At the midpoint is when the Antichrist reveals himself for who he really is. And that last half is what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And I talked about the 42 months of Antichrist of absolute power go from the midpoint until the end. The 1,260 days of the two witnesses would overlap the first and the second half of the Tribulation. 
We know that because their resurrection and their return to heaven in chapter 11 coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. So we know it's overlapping. Okay? This period of God's judgment through the seven vials is after the preaching of the witnesses, after they've returned to heaven, and at the sunset of the tribulation. We're at the very end here. Notice that the sore or the disease that comes upon men are upon men that had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped His name. Grammatically here, those that have the mark are those that worship Him. It's not two different groups of people. It's not, well, some have the mark and some of those that have it worship Him. Those that have the mark are those that worship the beast. It's very clear in the book of Revelation that the mark of the beast is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It doesn't matter why you do it. It's an act of worship. It's blasphemy. It's idolatry. It's a sin for which there is no forgiveness or cure. You know, we like to talk about sins are not sins or they're not such a big deal if the person had a certain motive for doing it. You know, the end justifies the means. Situational ethics. Is it really wrong to steal if I'm hungry? Right is right and wrong is wrong according to God. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter what your motive is. Sin is sin. Stealing is stealing. Murder is murder. Right is right. Wrong is wrong according to God. And so there is no excuse... Ignorance and fear are never excuses. There still had to be a blood sacrifice for sins committed in ignorance in the Old Testament. There was no escape. Fear is never an excuse. When you look at Revelation 21.8, it catalogs for us those who are cast into the lake of fire. And number one on the list... It's not murderers, not homosexuals, it's cowards, the fearful and unbelieving. Those who are fearful are those that don't believe God, what He says He is and what He says He will do. Those who take the mark don't believe God or the truth of His Word. They substitute something for God and they take it whether it's out of fear or adoration, it doesn't matter. It's an act of worship. Back in Revelation 14, we've talked about it. Third angel followed these snapshots, a snapshot of judgment, with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. So those who take the mark of the beast, all of them, two things are going to happen. They're going to drink the wine of God's wrath, and they're going to suffer in hell for all eternity, or the lake of fire for all eternity. The wine of his wrath is what we read right here. This is where it starts. When God says something, he means business. And that's exactly what happens here. The wrath is drunk, and the sores or the blames break forth. 
Cowardice is never an excuse to stand and be quiet. Never. I was reading a story, and I'm glad to hear that the the pig police officer was fired for it, but there was a video that came out where this pig, I don't know what else to call him, there's a lot of police out here who are pigs. Wicked people who think that the general population in America are their slaves and that they can tell them what to do and when to do it, and we're just supposed to bow down and say, yes, sir. I saw some horrendous video yesterday of a, of a police officer cursing out a young man, threatening him, and the young man said, thank you, officer, God bless you. And then the guy got in his face and used the F word about a hundred times, said he was going to take him to jail. And all the, the kid was just trying to be as respectful as possible. Then I saw another video of a black police officer just threatening this black teenager, talking to him like a piece of dirt on the ground, threatening to beat him up with terrible words. And I think, man, those are pigs. Wicked. And there's a lot of them out there. We don't owe any allegiance to people like that. You never are under any obligation in this country to ever obey an unlawful order. The law to which we as Christians are to submit ourselves, the ordinances spoken of in Romans 13, to which we are to commit ourselves, were written down on a piece of paper called a constitution. It's written down in a legal code called the law. You are never under any obligation as a Christian to obey an unlawful order. Never. But there was a police officer in Utah who roughed up a nurse, ordered a nurse to disobey the law and allow him to take blood from an unconscious patient. And when she was trying to explain to him the hospital policy and the law that she couldn't do it because she'd be breaking the law... He grabbed her and forced her into his police car and arrested her. I mean, it was outrageous. And there were people that stood by and did nothing. Nothing. There's no excuse for that. Those that stood by and tried to reason with him and did nothing are guilty for standing there and doing nothing. In a sense, they assented to that type of brutal brutality. And there's no excuse for it. It's worth getting arrested to stop a pig police officer from assaulting an innocent woman. Somebody should have stepped up and put his rear end on the ground. That's my opinion. At some point, we've got to be willing to step up in the face of evil and go to the aid of those that can't aid themselves. That's just my opinion. But when it comes to the mark of the beast, there's no excuse. You take it, it's an act of worship. And fear is not an excuse before God. Evil men triumph because good men do nothing. That's what we live in today. Most people in America would just sit and watch while an innocent woman is traumatized and do nothing. It's a shame. We as Christians ought to be different. But I'm glad, I was glad to read that that pig police officer was fired. He ought to go to jail. I'd love to see them put him in jail. They need to put him in, in a jail in Southern California and make sure he's in the wing where the gang that control things is the Black Liberation Army. That'd be great. Or put him in there with MS-13 where they control that wing of the prison. That's where police officers like that need to go. Just because a man wears a badge doesn't mean he's righteous. There's a whole lot of people going to wear badges and have authority in this period of period of time we're talking about. And they're far from righteous. They're wicked and evil.
Turn to Exodus chapter 9. Gone are the days in America when you can trust the average police officer. I praise God that there are those out there that uphold the law and want to do what's right and serve local governments and deserve respect and praise for that. But we're fools to think that that's the rule. It's not the rule anymore. It's the exception. It's a shame, but it's the facts. I've seen enough of that on the streets trying to share the gospel. I kind of understand how some of these other uh, demographics of people feel from time to time when it comes to the attitude of police because I've seen it with my own eyes. Exodus chapter 9, 8 through 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains. That's just like a oozing pus is what that means. Upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This was the sixth Egyptian plague. This first vial harkens back to that. It's the same type of thing, but unlike this, which was limited to the Egyptians, this is upon the whole earth, upon those who have taken the mark of the beast. The result of this was not repentance. It was a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This did not bring people to the Lord. It hardened their hearts. You'll see the same effect here with the vile judgments. These judgments do not bring men to repentance. It hardens their heart. We've got the testimony of what happened with Egypt, with Israel and Egypt for us to see printed on the page. And we totally ignored, and men will still harden their hearts. Notice what God says in verses 16 and 17 concerning Pharaoh. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And yet exaltest thou thyself against my people that thou wilt not let them go. God makes it very clear that he raised up Pharaoh for a purpose. Even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was done by God for a purpose, to bring him glory, to declare his name in all the earth. And it accomplished that purpose because when the spies came into Jericho, there were people there that knew what God had done and feared God. And as a result, they were delivered delivered into the very genealogy of Mashiach, Jesus the Christ. I'm talking about Rahab. So Pharaoh and the hardening of the hearts of the Egyptian people was for God's purpose. It's the same thing here. Please understand, this is the wrath of God. 
the judgment and the hardening of the hearts of the people of this earth. So that God may show His glory, the glory of His judgment to those that fear Him. To those gathered with harps on that sea of glass. To the church clothed in white. To to the nation of Israel that remains at that time yet to be delivered. A hardening of the heart. Pharaoh here is a type of antichrist. He hardened his heart and yet God said, you're my instrument. You harden your heart because I've raised you up to pour my judgment. Paul says in Romans, whom God, for, upon whom God will show mercy, he'll show mercy. Upon whom he wills, he'll harden his heart. A lot of people can't handle that truth. But it's God as he's revealed himself. Are you going to believe what God says? Or are you going to change Him into an image made like unto man or four-footed beast or creeping things? Isaiah 10 verse 5, Pharaoh was a type of Antichrist raised up as judgment, raised up to bring God glory. The same can be said of the man of sin. Isaiah 10 5, he's, he is Satan incarnate. He is the Satanic Messiah. But... Beyond that, he's an instrument of God. Isaiah 10.5, I've read this before. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Then later in the chapter, we told when this happens, it's when God completes his work upon the land of Israel. Antichrist, the Assyrian, is the rod of God's anger. So he may be Satan's superman, but God is beyond that. And this is all the rod of God's anger. Even the hardening of people's hearts. A noisome and grievous sore. That word noisome is an old English word. It means deep and painful. Deep, painful, injurious, an effect of something harmful. It's a symptom of something worse. It's not the disease, it's the symptom breaking forth. It's deep. It's painful. This isn't just a little, little zit on the skin or a little mosquito bite that itches a little bit or even something that bleeds just a little. This is a painful, deep sore. And it's not, it's a symptom of something worse. Boils. What are boils the effect of? They're the effect of corruption in the system. Our skin breaks forth into boils because something's wrong internally. Effects of bad blood, a corruption in the system. In Moses' day, this plague of sores fell upon men and beasts. Here it's upon men only. Men that have the mark of the beast. You see, the mark, which is technological advancement in the eyes of many... It's a symbol of the dawning of the age of Aquarius. It's the symbol of the golden age. Corrupts the system. It doesn't, can't, it doesn't format with the system, with biology. It corrupts the DNA. And as a result, it eventually breaks forth into these boils of judgment from God. I'm reminded of what happened in Genesis chapter 6 when the seeds of the sons of the, the son of God, sons of God mixed with the daughters of men, a devilish thing, and as a result, the DNA was corrupted, and there was no lines left that hadn't been corrupted except for Noah, who was perfect in his generations. 
Jesus said, as it is in the day, it was in the days of Noah, it will be in the last times. There's no reason to believe this corruption, this fraternizing with Satan and with the devils won't happen again. And, the whole, and, and man's very DNA will be corrupt. And the proof of that will be these boils that break forth. Corruption in the body and in the heart of those with the mark will eventually break forth to the surface. It's a symptom of what's inside. It's a symptom of the reprobate minds and hearts of those who worship the beast. You can't hide it. Wicked people, my friends, become physically ugly. That is a fact. That's a fact. Wicked people, when they become old, become physically ugly. And the more wicked they are, the harder it is to hide that physical unattraction. It's just a fact. In fact, God told Israel that that would happen to her women. Turn to Isaiah 3. This is, you know, I'll be accused of misogyny now today. Misogyny. Everybody likes to use that word, talking about the present. People don't even know what it means. I laugh when these punks in a college who couldn't add two plus three are going to tell, tell me I'm a misogynist. It wouldn't even, they don't even know what that word means. Isaiah 3, we'll let God speak. Verse 16. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet, and their calls and their round tires like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets. These are all decorations and jewelry fashions. And the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of a sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. God says He's going to take the beauty of the daughters of Zion and turn it into a stink and ugliness. A judgment. Bring to the surface physically what's in the heart spiritually. This is a prophecy upon the daughters of Zion. And it's been fulfilled. Now, I'm going, to be, I'm going to try to tread carefully here. I love the Jewish people. But I, and I talk to a lot of young Israelis. A lot of young Israelis. A lot of female young Israelis. Female Israelis are very attractive people. Very beautiful. What's described here in the beginning. But I've never, ever met an elderly Jewish woman who rejects Jesus as Messiah that's beautiful. Never seen one. Never. I've seen those that follow Jesus as Messiah that retain a beauty in their old age, but never one that rejects Him as Messiah. That judgment in Isaiah 3 is real today. 
fact, it's amazing how that judgment manifests itself from young people who are very beautiful that become the opposite of that when they're old. In a way you don't see in our culture. That judgment's real. Now that's not politically correct, but God does what He says He's going to do. And it's amazing to see in, in, amongst Jewish women between those who fear God and believe His Word and follow Jesus as Messiah and those that don't, a distinct difference in their old age in terms of their physical beauty. I think the same can be said of people here in America. Those that fear God in their old age, I think of my, my late grandmother and my grandmother today, have, a, have an air of beauty about them that you don't see in wicked old women covered in wrinkles whose heart's just wicked. I can think of somebody, I'm not going to say their name, that died not long ago. Wicked. Wicked. Dressed themselves up, but ugly. The, more, the older they became and the more, just, the more wickedness came out of the mouth, the more wrinkles on their face. It's just the way it is, friends. What's in the heart makes you ugly. Ladies, if you want to retain beauty and you want to be beautiful, God says beauty is a meek and quiet spirit. And I promise you it will affect you physically. It will translate into a physical beauty that the world can't explain. That's just the way God made it. What's inside corrupts the surface. It beautifies the surface or it corrupts it. That's just the way God made it. You can't, we act as if the, the inside and the outside, the flesh and the spirit are completely independent entities. They're not. They're not independent of one another. Even the believer is not whole in terms of salvation until he receives a glorified body. Wickedness produces ugliness. One of the ugliest women on the face of the planet today and one of the most wicked is that devil witch who ran for president. Mm -hmm. And the older she gets and the more lies she tells out of her mouth, the uglier she becomes. I'm just, that's just the way it is. One other, another ugly woman, one of the ugliest there is, is that woman, I think her name is Richards, something Richards, that head of that Planned Parenthood. Talk, came out to, uh, last week talking about how Planned Parenthood respects life. We respect the life of immigrants. And we want to make sure they're taken care of and have sanctuary. Life? That hip- I mean, I couldn't even look at the woman in the picture. It's so ugly. When you pair it with that hypocrisy. Ugly people. Ugly people. The most beautiful women there are on the planet are those that have the peace of the Holy Spirit that exudes from their face. That exudes from their mouth. That's beauty. That's beauty. And God and the peace of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of Jesus Christ delivers us from the ugliness of this world. It does. It does. But God said there'd be a judgment even on the physical features of the daughters of John. And it's exactly what He's done. There's only one thing that can redeem from it, Jesus Christ. God said there'll be a physical judgment upon the wicked of this world. But unlike the prophecy against the daughters of Zion, there is no cure for this. Once the boils break out, there's no cure. None. Wicked people become ugly. That's not politically correct. And uh, I guess that makes me a misogynist or a, 
a racist or uh, I don't know all the words they like to use today. But uh, I didn't say it. God did. I mean, never underestimate the beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. I think of another lady that just became uglier. The more liberal and hypocritical she became was that lady that used to be a commentator on Fox News. You know, the one that tried to attack the president in those debates. I don't even remember her name. That's how unimportant she is to me. But she moved over, and it's like the the more liberal and the more uh, outspoken she became in her hypocrisy, it was almost like her face became like porcelain. I mean, the woman used to be attractive, but it was just, it got to where I couldn't even look at her. A wicked spirit creates an ugliness to the demeanor of a person. We need to be careful. We need to exude something different. But with this mark and the boils that it eventually brings, we see the ultimate example of the farce that is technological advancement. The farce of technological advancement. We believe those things that make our lives more convenient make our lives better. We can't even see that they created dependency. And with every technological advancement that brings convenience, there is a price that one day will have to be paid. One day. Everything. There are prices that we pay now for the conveniences we enjoy. If the generation that went to Europe and the Pacific to deliver the world from the tyranny of the Nazis and the Japanese in World War II, had they had the conveniences that our young people have in America today, we'd either be a lampshade on somebody's table or we'd be speaking German. That's just the way it is. There's a price pay. We're paying the price of American technological advancement today with the generation of young people that's coming up. We're paying the price. We've created a dependency and an entitlement from which there is no deliverance. That's why there won't be Make America. We can say Make America Great Again. It's kind of like, it's almost become like the bleeding of sheep. I get sick of hearing it. MAGA. MAGA. I mean, come on. Look at the generation of young people coming up that think they're entitled to everything. That think that uh, they can't exist unless there's a safe space or the statue is torn down. Some people freaked out at some campus in the South a week or so ago because somebody saw a banana peel in the trees and thought it meant something racist when some kid just threw it up there. There is no make America great again, my friends. There isn't. There can't be. This doesn't allow it. There can be a reprieve or a respite or continued open door for the gospel. But there is no make America great again because we are going to pay the price for the technological advancements that we've put forth and that we've gobbled up with no restraint, with no accountability. The mark of the beast will be in the flesh and on it. We've talked about that extensively. It'll allow people to buy and sell. It'll be convenient. You won't need cash. You won't need cards. But it'll corrupt the body. A slow corruption that eventually breaks forth into boils and blames and it's too late. It's kind of like radiation. 
You know, you can walk, you can be exposed to radiation and not think there's anything wrong. But eventually you pay the price when you're exposed to high levels. It breaks forth into all kinds of crazy stuff. People that were living over in Europe when Chernobyl, the Chernobyl disaster took place. The effects, I mean, if you're right there at ground zero, there are immediate effects. But the effects of that radiation that traveled through Europe were seen later in places like Belarus with the, all the birth effects and stuff that came later, the way that cloud traveled up. That's what this is. This little mark, this little chip seems so advanced. But yeah, there's a price to pay. And this first vial is the price to pay. Now, the way God did things, the way God designed things is always the best. And I'm going to tell you, we have skyscrapers and iPhones, but life in the Garden of Eden with none of that was so much better. So much better. We can come up with all these technological advancements, and yet the average life expectancy of man is the same as it's been since things dwindled down after the flood. Plus or minus a few years. Doesn't change anything. Live strong, but die anyway. This first vile judgment is the ultimate example of the farce of technological advancement. I love technology. I love playing with it. I love testing it out. But we all become dependent upon it in a way that's actually pretty sad. Us Christians too. I can't even remember a day when there was no cell phones. I, don't even, I lived like that for a while. I traveled like that for a while. But now I can't imagine it because I'm dependent upon it. It's something from which none of us can completely escape, but we can look forward to the day to be delivered from it. There is no cure. There is no cure for these boils. The proof is in verse 11. After the fifth vial, it says that the men blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So here we are at the, almost at the end of these judgments. After the fifth vial, they're still blaspheming God because of the pains and the sores they still have. There is no cure for this. And it only serves to harden the heart, just like Pharaoh. These vials of God's wrath don't bring men to salvation. It hardens the heart. This is the answer to what was announced in chapter 14. It's where it starts. And then it finishes in the lake of fire. Let's look at verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Some commentators say that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vial judgments are just restatements of the same judgments. Some teach that they've been fulfilled in history, down through the ages, that all of Revelation is in the past. That the coming of Christ or the, the pinnacle was at the destruction of the Jewish temple. Foolishness. But there's no reason to believe that these are just a restatement of the same judgments that have already been stated. That this is some literary trickery where John's describing the same event, events in three different ways. There's no reason to think that at all. In fact, if we compare the trumpet judgments of chapter 8 
with the vile judgments of chapter 10, we'll see some distinct differences. In chapter 8, the judgment falls upon the vegetation. Here we've got the first vials upon men with the mark. And then we begin to see some similarities. The second trumpet and the second vial are upon the salt waters. The third trumpet and the third vial are upon the fresh waters. The fourth trumpet and the fourth vial is upon the heavens. The fifth vial, I mean the fifth trumpet and the fifth vial are torments upon men. The sixth trumpet and the sixth vial, one of them, the trumpet is infernal destruction and the vial paves the way for complete destruction. There's definitely some similarities. However, the trumpet judgments were limited in scope. When it came to the fresh water, the the salt water in the heavens, it only involved a third of the earth. Only a third. It involved the wrath of wicked men, the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments, the wrath of the devil and his armies, hell unleashed on earth. These vials are worldwide. This isn't just a portion of the waters. This is all of the sea. Poured out His vial upon the sea and it, the oceans, became as the blood of a dead man. This is all of it. This is the whole world. There's a big difference between one third in the earth and the whole world. These are not the same judgments restated. It's a crescendo. It's, It's a crescendo that consummates when that sky splits and the Son of Man puts His foot on the Mount of Olives. The vials are not the wicked, I mean the wrath of demons and fallen angels coming out of hell. This is the wrath of God. The wrath of the devil and men is limited in its application and scope, but God's is universal. It's upon the whole world. Just as His salvation is available to the whole world, His wrath is upon the whole world. These judgments compared to the trumpet judgments are universal and much, much greater in intensity. In chapter 8, verse 3, it says, in another angel, wait a minute, let me, I think I've got the wrong verse here. I'm sorry, it's 8 verse 8. Here we've got the second trumpet judgment. And the second angel sounded, and as it, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. So a third part of the sea became blood. However, here in 16 verse 3, his, an angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it, that is the whole sea, became not as blood, but as the blood of a dead man. There's a difference between blood and the blood of a dead man. Big difference. There's a difference between the blood that comes out of a pig or a cow the moment it's slaughtered and the blood that's just sat in a dead carcass in the woods, pooling inside a dead carcass for days. There's a distinct difference here. This judgment results 
in the death of every living soul in the sea. It what became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul died in the sea. With the trumpet judgment, a third of the marine life, a third of the navies were destroyed. This destroys every single living soul in the sea. The blood of a dead man. Not fresh, bright red blood that's been pumping, but stale, stinky, nasty blood. What does it mean that every living soul? When I see that, I think about Genesis. God said He breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. Well, here we've got everything. We, we, we have, it said that every living soul in the sea. So, well, man's the only one that's a living soul. So maybe people are living underwater and have built underwater cities to escape the judgment of God. That's kind of the reasoning. When we see statements like this, we're always told we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. What's meant here? We always have to look at the nearer context before we look at the distant context. This is kind of just an interesting lesson in biblical interpretation. What does every living soul here mean in the sea? Does this include animals? Do animals then have a soul? That's the question. Does this contradict what God said in Genesis 2? No, we just need to look at the the near context. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9 interprets chapter 16, verse 3. We've got to go to the near context first. When it comes to understanding the Scriptures, we've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture, but we don't jump over the near context to go to the distant context. This is just a lesson in what's called hermeneutics. The proper understanding of the Scriptures. Chapter 8, verse 9. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. So the sea creatures are described here as having life. That's what interprets chapter 16, verse 3. Every living soul, that is the creatures, a third of which died in that trumpet judgment, all of them die now. Versus the distant context of Genesis 2. God breathed the breath of life into man and man became a living soul. Obviously man has something that makes him distinct. But it doesn't mean that animals don't have a soul. They do. It says here living soul. Referring to the animals. And the animals are those that had life in Revelation 8. But there's a difference between the soul of an animal and the soul of a man. The soul of a man houses something that the animal soul does not. There's obviously something that makes man distinct and makes him of far more value than an animal. This is something, this is an, a blasphemy in our society today that contradicts the words of Jesus himself and makes us reprehensible. When we equate man with animals, we blaspheme God and we blaspheme his image. When we, when we act as if somebody leaving there accidentally forgetting to untie their dog when their family had to flee from Texas because the hurricane was coming, when we, when all the outrage about some dog, when it, but yet it's okay to abort A third trimester baby. I mean, that's blasphemy. That's wicked. Let's be reminded of some things Jesus said. Daniel, Luke 12, 7. Gene, Matthew 12, 12. 
These are some words of Jesus that are not politically correct in 2017. What's Luke 12, 7 say? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus said that an individual human is of more value in the eyes of God than many sparrows. More valuable. Man's more valuable in the eyes of God than many sparrows. Matthew 12, 12. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Jesus was telling the parable about, you know, if a man has a sheep and one of them falls into a pit, he's going to leave the 99 on the Sabbath day and go rescue one. And he told that story to make a point. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Jesus says that a man is far more valuable than a sheep. I didn't say it. Jesus Christ did. Man is distinct. Animals, I believe, have a soul, but it's merely a bodily shape housed within its flesh. When an animal dies, the soul is stuck to the body and it dies with it. Look up, let's look at Ecclesiastes. Solomon says something interesting here. There is life in an animal. There is a soul. But unlike the soul of a human, it's stuck to that animal's body. And when that animal's body dies, the soul dies too. So know your pet so-and-so that died won't be in heaven because that soul dies. There will be animals in heaven in the new heavens and the new earth. They won't live and behave like they do in this fallen creation. The animal life does groan under the weight of sin. Man's sin does affect even the animal life in creation. But animals don't have a soul. I can't, oh, I can't find this book. Ecclesiastes 3.21 Who knoweth the spirit of a man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? So the spirit of man goes up. The spirit of a beast goes to the earth with its body when it dies. It's tied to its body. That word there in Hebrew means soul. It's tied with his body. It's different. Man's soul is a bodily shape that houses a spirit. The animal soul is a bodily shape that give it, gives it certain instincts and affections. But man's soul is not just a bodily shape housed by the flesh. It houses something too. It houses a spirit. And therefore, when the body dies, the spirit goes to God for judgment. Okay? Um, the spirit returns to God. It answers to God. The soul. It departs the body. It doesn't go with the body. There is no soul sleep. Like some uh, so-called denominations teach. The Bible doesn't teach that. You know, Jesus told the parable of the rich man. When Lazarus and the rich man died, their souls remained conscience, conscious in a place, a holding cell. Paradise, a holding cell for the righteous, was emptied when Christ rose from the dead. And therefore, Paul could say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Numbers 31.28 shed some light on this. Numbers 31.28 
Numbers 31, 28. And levy a tribute unto the Lord of the men of war which went out to battle, one soul of five hundred, both of the persons and of the bees and the asses and of the sheep. So people, cattle, asses and sheep are all spoken of as souls. Because they all have a soul. It's just a different type of soul. Man's soul houses his spirit. What is said in Genesis 2 about a living soul is defined in the rest of that chapter and in chapter 3. That defines it. It's a soul, a living soul in Genesis 2 is one that houses a spirit that can commune with God. And we see the consequences of what that does in chapter 3 when man disobeys God. So what makes man distinct in Genesis 2 is that he has a relationship with God. His soul, spoken in Genesis 2, that living soul houses a spirit. The living souls spoken of in chapter 16 of Revelation are animals that are tied to their bodies. They die. Every living soul dies in the sea. In Revelation, a living soul is the consciousness of life. Something that all animals have. In Genesis, the living soul mentioned in chapter 2 plus what follows in the Genesis account is the consciousness of life and the consciousness of moral responsibility before one's maker. Let's look at a couple of verses real quick. Bob, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Matthew, Hebrews 4.12 and 13. I'm going to talk just a minute about man. Go ahead. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul refers to us under the inspiration of the Spirit as having a body, a soul, and a spirit. In the work of salvation, the Spirit is redeemed when we are justified by faith. The soul is redeemed through the sanctification of the Spirit in this life and the body is redeemed in the glorification that comes with the resurrection. Salvation isn't just to the Spirit. It's for the whole person. And Paul speaks of the glorification of the body in the past tense as if it's as good as done. Those whom God justifies in their spirit, He will sanctify in their soul and He will glorify in their body. So these people prancing around claiming to be Christians because they... Prayed some prayer, but have no evidence of the sanctification of the Spirit, no hope of the resurrection in this life. They're liars. They're false. There is victory over sin in the Christian life. There is chastisement for sin in the Christian life. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul, and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
The Word of God and its power is, is a unique surgical instrument. It does what no man-made psychobabble can do. It can actually cut and divide between the soul and the spirit. The soul houses the human spirit. And the only thing that can divide between the two is the Word of God. It's the only thing sharp enough to do it. It's a unique power. There is a division between the soul and spirit. There's a distinct a distinction there that only the Word of God can divide. The lesson here is that man has a threefold nature. Man is a trinity. When it says God created man as image, the triune God created a triune being, man, his body, soul, and spirit. Um, I just printed these off. You guys can take them. This is an interesting diagram done in the early 1900s by Dr. Clarence Larkin on the threefold nature of man. And I don't have but maybe 10 or 15 of those, but if one family or wants to take one, this is just kind of an interesting thing. You guys can look to better understand it. We've got the body, the soul, and the spirit. The body has five gates. Five gates that go inward. The sight, the smell, the hearing, the taste, and the touch. These are the five sense gates. The soul of man has five gates as well that correspond to each of these body gates. For example, the eyes, the sight gate, is the gate by which the physical body sees things. The soul has a gate called imagination. Imagination is the soul's gate by which the soul sees the nose gate that smells from the body corresponds to the soul gate of the conscience. Just like the, soul, the, the, the nose can smell things. It can tell whether something's good or bad by the smell. So does the conscience. The conscience is the gate whereby our soul smells what is right and what is wrong. We've got that ability. The hearing gate. We hear. We hear things. And interpret them. The soul has a gate that corresponds to that called memory. It hears things and it's able to recall them. The taste or the mouth gate. We can taste something. We can compare foods. The soul has the ability of reason to taste and compare facts. What is true? What works? What doesn't work? The body has the touch gate whereby we can feel things. Our soul has a gate, the gate of affection. Affection is the gate whereby our soul feels things. It's amazing how these things work together. And then you've got the spirit. The spirit is housed by the soul. It has faculties, faith, hope, reverence, prayer, worship, faculties whereby we can communicate with our maker. Unfortunately, because of Adam's sin, the spirit of man died. And it's like it's housed in there. The natural man has a spirit. It's housed in there, but it's dead. And there's a gate to the spirit. And in sinful man, there's a guard there. That guard is man's will. And only when man puts his will aside... And stands down, can the Holy Spirit enter in and bring to life that which is dead. And as a result, the fruit of the Spirit is born. 
And then these fruits exude into, they affect our soul, our imagination, conscious memory, reason, and affections, and they affect our very physical body. I believe that the fruit of the Spirit affects the eyes and the nose and the ear and the mouth and the way we, and our, our, our senses. It's an amazing, complex thing that God has made here. And uh, it makes man unique. Man is responsible before God. Now, animals have a body and they have a soul. But their soul is different. It doesn't house a spirit. And unlike the gates of imagination, conscience, memory, reason, and affection... The gates to the animal soul are, is instinct. What the animal does, it does by instinct. It's been programmed by God. That's why animals know when storms are coming. They know when to find food. They know what to do. They respond to stimuli. But man's a more complex being. There are elements of our nature that are instinctive. Matthew never studied how to deliver a baby, but something kicked in when he had to do it in his bathtub. There's an element of instinct there, but we're, there's also a more, there's more complex elements whereby we are responsible before our Maker and whereby we can communicate or commune with Him. It's a complex thing. So just because an animal has a soul, which it does, doesn't mean its soul is the same as a man's soul. A man's soul houses a spirit that can be redeemed. Man's soul houses a spirit whereby he can know his maker and communicate with him through faith, hope, reverence, prayer, and worship. So you may find this interesting. I just kind of printed it off uh, for you to look at. I don't want to get too much off topic. But... uh, When we look at this second vile judgment, what becomes evident is that these vials have to be near the end of the tribulation and they have to happen very quickly. If this happened to the oceans, there's no way life on earth could sustain itself very long after that. No way. So this isn't something that happens and then everything goes on as it always has for another three years. No way. Earth could not sustain itself after a after an event like this. Can you imagine the smell? These are quick. Very quick. Let's look at the third vial. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Here we have judgment or wrath fall upon the fresh water. Salt water becomes as the blood of a dead man, and then with this vial, the fresh water turns to blood. Let's go back to Exodus 7. This mirrors what God did in the land of Egypt with the very first plague. Exodus 7, verse 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses, 
Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. So here we have a plague of seven days upon the river of Egypt, and then it was cured. In Revelation, what we have is not upon a river. It's upon the rivers and fountains of the earth. The fresh water of the earth. And there is no cure. It's not undone. Until Messiah returns and sets up His kingdom and heals the whole earth. There's no cure under the reign of Antichrist. This must be near the very end. has to be. When it says fountains here, it's interesting. In the Spanish New Testament, it says fuentes. A fuente is a source. It's talking about the sources of the river. Or I think we can see it defined in Exodus. Where did What became blood? Not just the Nile, but the ponds and the pools of water. The sources of water. Not necessarily a spring. It's not talking about groundwater here. It's talking about the sources or the fountains of rivers. What are fountains? Lakes and ponds and pools of water. The fresh water... It's contaminated. It becomes his blood. And just as the Egyptians have, had to do, so will men have to do. They'll have to dig to find water. The only water left will be what they can get from the groundwater. It'll have to be digged because everything will be polluted. And man can't survive. I mean, he obviously survives long enough to gather his armies and march upon Israel and be gathered to Armageddon. He can't do it without some form of sustenance. So there's going to have to be water somewhere. It'll be where the Egyptians found it. They got to dig to find it. It won't be on the surface. This has to be toward the end. Not necessarily the groundwater. It's kind of interesting when you think about the smell that something like this will do. I've traveled up in northern Quebec and in a place called Labrador in Canada. We drove up there. It was 900 miles of dirt road. That car that Mindy and Eric drive now, that was the first road trip we ever took. 900 miles of dirt road. Did a big old loop up through the Labrador. And up in that part of Canada, there's an insane amount of iron and minerals in the water that's even more so than what you see in places like Michigan and Wisconsin. It's so much so that the rivers are literally red. They almost have a tin, they look like they're they can look like blood in certain light. We camped alongside this one river. It was a beautiful thing. But it was very, very red. And I'm telling you, there was a smell there. Not like the smell of a dead man, but a a distinct smell. In places like that where people wash clothes, it's hard to take a shower. Jamie and I stayed in a place in northern Minnesota once where there was so much iron in the water. I almost threw up every time I took a shower. Oh, 
sulfur. So imagine the smell when it's turned to blood. Life can't sustain itself very long. In Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where He talks about the last days, He mainly focuses on what He calls the Great Tribulation, which are the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Matthew 24, Luke, Matthew, Mark 13, Luke 21. Uh, we've talked about this. We've compared Jesus' teachings. They follow, fall just in line with what John says. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says in verse 21, He's, he's talking about these judgments. He says, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. These judgments are short and quick. And then Jesus steps in. Because if He doesn't, even His elect, the people of Israel that remain will will die. Everybody will die. There will be nothing left. And so He steps in to shorten them. These are short judgments. At the very end, this is the end and if he, didn't, he doesn't step in at the moment he does, all flesh will die. Life can't sustain itself. But for the elect's sakes, they'll be shortened. And he'll set up a kingdom. It's interesting, in this third vile judgment, we have a reference to what's called the angel of the waters. The vial is poured out, the waters become blood, and I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because Thou hast judged. When we look at the Scriptures, there's a remarkable variety of ministries assigned to angels in the Scriptures. Let's look at a couple verses. Jason, Psalm 104.4. Eric, Hebrews 1.13 and 14. Just read them as soon as you get them. God's angels are ministers. That means they have ministries. And those that do ministry, do ministry in jurisdictions. God's angels have a variety of ministries and jurisdictions we see in Scripture. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? God's angels are ministering spirits. They have ministries. The angels that fell went from a position of ministry... They, didn't, they, they have ministries too. They work for the devil now. There is a spiritual realm. We think we're too smart for that here in America. We think that we're all there is. Satan won a great victory in Western society by convincing Western man that he doesn't exist. Nobody believes in him anymore. That's great for him because he didn't have to work real hard. But there is a spiritual realm... I love this passage in Hebrews when you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 because it becomes very clear that the Son of God is superior not just to the prophets, but He's superior to the angels as well. The Bible tells us that God at sundry times spoke 
to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He speaks to us by His Son. God has a Son, and it's by His Son He speaks to us. The Muslims are wrong. Muslims that die in their religion go to hell. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Jews that die in rabbinic Judaism denying the Son of God go to hell. Every one of them. Because God speaks through His Son who's superior to the prophets and superior to the angels. Hebrews 1, written to Hebrews, is very clear about that. Rabbinic Judaism and Islam have one great thing in common. They deny that God has a son and that Jesus was the son of God. Never forget that. We've got to tell them the truth. There is a spiritual realm. When we look at the scriptures, there are angels that have jurisdiction over governments and nations. In fact, one is spoken by name in terms of jurisdiction over the people of Israel. What's his name? Daniel chapter 12. Who's the prince that stands for the people of Israel? Anybody know? Nobody knows that off the top of the tip of their tongue? No, it's not Gabriel. It's Michael. Michael is the prince of the people of Israel. He'll stand up for Israel in the last days. We see that war in heaven. There are angels that have jurisdiction over specific places on this earth. Let's look at John 5 for a minute. Be patient with me. I want to get to this one stopping point. I think I can. John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season unto the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So here we had an angel that had a jurisdiction over a pool of water. He would trouble the water once in a while and whoever got in the water first was healed. Every time this lame man or impotent man tried to get in there, somebody would beat him, in, beat him down there and he just laid there. And we go on to read the story. He had an infirmity of 38 years Jesus, in verse 6, saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, saith unto him, Do you want to be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming up, another step before me. Jesus said, Rise and take up thy bed and walk. The sun's superior to the angels. But here we have an angel that has a specific jurisdiction. It's funny because the modern versions, a lot of modern English versions, completely cut out chapter 5, verse 4. It's not in there. It's missing about the angel. Well, that's not authentic. Well, if that verse is not authentic, then what in the heck does the guy mean in chapter 5, verse 7? Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. What would that even mean if verse 4 wasn't there? It makes no sense. That's just foolish Textual criticism, foolish scholars that think they know the Scripture and want to cast doubt on God's Word. If verse 4 is not authentic, then verse 7 makes absolutely no sense. 
Ridiculous. But there was an angel that had jurisdiction over a specific place. There are angels that have jurisdiction over children. Turn to Matthew 18. I'm not going to confess that I understand exactly what this means. But Jesus said it. It's true. Jesus said in chapter 18, verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, Be very careful about despising children because they have angels that watch over them who see the face of the Father. I don't know exactly what that means, but woe unto those that despise the little children. Woe unto those that do awful things to children. There are angels that have jurisdiction over certain elements of nature. That's what we see right here in Revelation 16. The angel of the waters had jurisdiction over the fresh waters. There's a spiritual world. And just like there are angels that have jurisdictions over certain things, there are devils and demons that do as well. You know, the prince of Persia and the prince of Babylon were demonic spirits that had jurisdiction over those wicked kingdoms that even restrained the one angel from coming to Daniel as quick as he wanted to. There's a spiritual realm. Powers and principalities. We're foolish to think otherwise. We're foolish to think that we are at the top of the food chain. We are not. In fact, all it would take to deceive this entire world and almost every single, almost the entire church to, say, to just say, well, and in all of Islam and everything else, it'd be very easy to deceive the whole world and men just cast all that stuff aside. All would have to do is a spaceship appear over a city and some creature get out and say, Jesus was one of us. We're the, we're the saviors. We're the ones that brought life here years ago and then everybody would just fall down and worship. It would be very easy for Antichrist to rise. There's all kind, you know, all this UFOs and all these stories about the U.S. government being involved and people getting abducted and all that stuff. That is laying the ground. That's Satan's angels and his demons laying the groundwork for the man of sin to deceive the whole world. There's a lot of demonic activity. And we just can't see it because we think we're above all that. We think we're at the top of the food chain. We're not. Ask the people that went for a walk in the woods and never came back. They're at the top of the food chain. Nope. There's a spiritual realm. We see that here. The angel of the waters. Lord, you are righteous. You are, you were, and you shall be. And you are righteous because you have judged in this way. God is righteous according to this testimony because He judges the wicked. His righteousness is tied up in His judgment. Back in Revelation 13, 9 and 10, the Bible says something very important. If any man have an ear, let him hear. In other words, listen up. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Divine karma. Payday someday. God judges the wickedness and His righteousness. What makes Him righteous is tied up in that. 
God's righteousness is wrapped up in divine karma. He cannot forgive sin without punishing it. Therefore, He punished it on His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can be redeemed. We can escape. But He judges the wicked. He's immutable and consistent. He does not change. That's what, make, what makes Him righteous. Verse 6, divine karma. This is the testimony of this angel. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. In other words, they deserve it. You've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. The wicked deserve God's judgment. Why are we afraid to say that? America deserves hurricanes that batter its cities. Why are we afraid to say it? Let's look at a couple of Psalms. Just be pa- I'm almost, I'm going to get to a great stopping point. I've got to get to this point where I can read you this little article. It, it'll just give you a good laugh. It's, it's, I want to give this woman some publicity. She deserves it. Um, Jim, Psalm 510. Tony, Psalm 7, 15 and 16. And Gene, Psalm 9, 16. See what the Psalms say about God's righteousness. Psalm 5.10. Okay, God's judgment is to give the wicked the judgment of their own counsels. His righteousness is tied up in giving the wicked exactly what they've done to others. Exactly what they've plotted upon others will come upon them. Psalm 17, 15, and 16. As for me, I will behold thy face. No, I'm sorry, that's not correct. I'm Psalm 7. Seven. I, I might have spoke to you wrong, brother. I'm sorry. Psalm 7, 15, and 16. He made a pit and digged it, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head. Okay, the wicked dug a pit and then he falls into it. The mischief he meant for others comes upon his own head, and his violence comes down upon himself. That's the righteousness of God upon the wicked to bring upon them what they have sown, the law of divine karma. It's funny because in Psalm seven. This law of divine karma is declared by David. And then look what he says in verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness. God's righteousness is tied up in the law of divine karma. God is righteous because the wicked falls into the trap. He ensures that the wicked falls in the trap He's laid for others. You can't divorce that from God's right. You can't talk of God's righteousness apart from His judgment. In fact... The salvation that God offers is not offered without consideration for His judgment. It has to be made... Salvation was designed according to the necessity of His judgment. That's why He couldn't just save people without punishing a perfect sacrifice. God is just... And righteous because sin must be paid for. But he can justify those that believe on Jesus because it was paid for upon Jesus. 
Psalm 916. It says in verse 15, The heathen are sunk down in the pit which they made, and the net which they hid in their own foot. The Lord is known by the judgment He executeth, and that judgment is when the wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Here, what the wicked have done to the saints and the martyrs who asked God way back in chapter 6, when are you going to do something? What they've done by shedding the blood of righteous men Now God's going to give them blood to drink. And that is righteousness. That is tied to God's righteousness. The fifth seal, the question, How long, O Lord, before you take vengeance upon those that have shed our blood? Here we've got the specific answer. Now, I'll give them blood to drink. This angel says they are worthy. You deserve it. We used to go to the college campuses and preach. There was a sign I think Brother Sean had, and it just amazed me how every time this sign came out, people flipped out. It said, you deserve hell. And man, you could get the, you could get the campus crusade and the young life. They would freak out when you brought that out. You deserve hell. We talk about God's judgment, and we even speak about Uh, things like hurricanes being the judgment of God. Even conservatism thinks we're foolish. How awful is that? To think that God would judge somebody. To think that we deserve hell. We deserve hell. We deserve hell. They are worthy. They deserve these judgments. We deserve hell. God didn't have to save us. By His grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, and we can escape it. But it doesn't change the fact that we deserve it. Even those of us that are saved deserve hell. If you can't realize that, you can't be saved. If you don't realize that you deserve hell, then you don't know what salvation is. That's just... You know, if you, you claim to be a Christian and you get mad at the idea that men deserve hell, you don't know Jesus Christ of the Bible. Because until you come to a place of repentance where you acknowledge your guilt before God and acknowledge that you deserve His wrath and judgment, you can never understand Jesus Christ as a Savior and a sacrifice and a Redeemer. It's impossible. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no salvation without acknowledgement of guilt and the deserving of God's punishment. Period. Now, I just want to read this little article that I read. Because uh, it's very interesting. It kind of goes with this, this idea here about hell. Chicago, Illinois. The presiding bishop of the apostate, I like the fact that they included that word, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA, opined in an interview this week with the Chicago Sun-Times that hell is empty because God doesn't give up on those who reject Him. Elizabeth Eaton was interviewed on Wednesday by reporter Robert Hareguth during his podcast, Face to Faith. Hareguth asked Eaton a variety of questions during the 42-minute discussion, from whether she's ever had doubts since becoming a minister, to how she has been received as the ELCA's first female presiding bishop, to what Jesus will look like when he returns, and to what she thinks heaven is like. Do you think there's a hell? Hareguth also asked. There may be, 
Eaton answered after pausing a moment, adding, But I think it's empty. When asked why, she explained it was because Jesus said He would draw all men to Himself and that she doesn't believe God will give up on people. Jesus was clear in John 3 that when He is raised up, He will draw all men to Himself. I guess she forgot to read Philippians chapter 2 in terms of what that means. Jesus will draw all men to Himself and every one will bow. I must have forgot to read that. People like this hate Paul the Apostle anyway, so they would never read those epistles. Eaton stated, if we look at salvation history, ever since we got booted out of the garden, it has been God's relentless pursuit to bring His people to God. Now people wonder, well, can you say no? I imagine you can say no to God, but I don't think God is going to give up on us. And if God has eternity, then God can certainly keep working on those folks, she said. That might be a little bit of heresy along the lines of origin, but I just don't think God gives people up. Well, madam, you never read Romans chapter 1. God does give up on people. He gives them over to a reprobate mind. This little measly, puny, miniature God that she speaks about is not the God of the Bible. And I reject that God that she speaks about because it's not the God of creation, the God of Israel. It's not the God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman is an idol worshiper and a liar. And she's up to the same old tricks of the demon that of the devil, of the, uh, uh, she's up to the tricks that the demon that possesses her learned from his master, the devil himself, twisting the scriptures. Jesus will draw all men to himself means that hell is empty. No, it means that every man will bow before him, those of us that do it willingly, and those upon whom God throws their knees down and shatters them before him. That's what it means to draw men to himself. What a wicked thing. Eaton also outlined during the interview that while she believes that the Bible is inerrant, the ELCA does not view all Scripture as literal. How much of the New Testament do you think is literally true in terms of Christ, how He operated and how He lived? Herguth asked. Lutherans, at least our understanding, were not biblical literalists. And I would say that no one is a biblical literalist. Because Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, I'm seeing a lot of people with both eyes and both hands. And you can't tell me there's not been some sin going on there. And also, when our Lord said that the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds, it isn't, she continued. Does that mean He doesn't know what He's talking about? No. This is unbelievable here. This is tantamount to that ugly woman saying that Planned Parenthood values life. She said that rather Scripture needs to interpret Scripture and should not be cherry-picked, but that it should be accepted as a whole because it got the gospel right. You've just cherry-picked. He will draw them into himself and you tell us not to do it. These wicked people don't even can't see their own hypocrisy. I remember being with congregations after our decision in 2009 to allow homosexuals to serve as clergy, where they thought, well, I heard the Bible describing human sexuality this way, and now you're saying it another way. And You can see the ark going on. So if that's not true, maybe the resurrection isn't true. However, the entire New Testament was written after the resurrection of Jesus, so it has authority for us because it got that right. Okay, well, it got, so she subjectively says it got the resurrection right, but everything else is wrong. This is foolishness. 
And, and, and the picture of this woman, it proves everything I said earlier. Trust me. I don't know what kind of people follow people like this. But people like this are a symptom of a, of a worse problem. The, the, the ELCA is not corrupt and, and apostate because people like this lead it. It's because the people in the congregation, this is what they want. Wicked. And to say that Lutherans didn't literally believe the Bible. They must be, there must be some other guy with the last name Luther in history they follow because that's not Martin Luther. These people are wicked, evil devils and we ought not fraternize with them. We ought not play tiddlywinks with them. We have no part in that. No partnership with anything like that. But to call them to repentance. Wicked. We deserve hell and hell is not empty. That's a lie straight from the devil. Wicked. But that is the time we live in. This angel of the waters says they deserve it and then he's answered. Who answers him? Another out of the altar. Where was the altar? Remember the altar, the angel there? He kind of stood there representing all those martyrs that were crying for vengeance. Well, here, God does. He told them to wait just a little while until your fellow servants are killed like you are and the iniquity is full and then we see the tribulation saints on that sea of glass. And now, the angel from the place where the people earlier were calling for God's vengeance answers back on behalf of the people. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. So the saints see their vindication and they praise God for His righteous judgments. We ought to praise God for His righteous judgments while we humbly recognize that we deserve His wrath. I really want to get to something. Just be patient. I'm almost done. Here we have a heavenly confirmation of an earthly witness. Reminds me of what we see in the New Testament. There were three times in the life of Jesus that there was a heavenly confirmation of an earthly event. At His baptism, at His transfiguration, and right after He marched into Jerusalem and they were waving palm branches, a voice spoke from heaven. Heavenly confirmation. This is heavenly confirmation of an earthly event. And it's every bit as strong and resolute as the three heavenly confirmations concerning Christ when He walked the earth. God's judgment is as resolute as His witness concerning Christ. True and righteous is God and His salvation. And true and righteous are His judgments. The church in this country refuses talk about this. We are in a state of perpetual denial. In Romans 3.26 it says God's, to declare I say at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believes in Jesus. The testimony for Christ doesn't change God's justness. He is just and He can justify those that believe in Jesus because His righteous judgment fell upon Jesus Christ. 
True and righteous are His salvation, the heavenly confirmation in Christ's day. Jesus was that confirmation. This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. True and righteous are His judgments as this heavenly confirmation comes down from heaven. But we are in a state of denial that true and righteous are God's judgments. We're in a state of denial in this country. We're in a state of denial in the church. Perpetual denial. I'm reminded of something uh, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, once said. He said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and His justice does not sleep forever. We deny this. We deny the fact that something like Harvey or Irma could be the justice of God. And when we breathe a word about it, we're the most horrible people on the face of the planet. That's not the way our founding fathers thought. Jefferson knew that a day would come when God's justice wouldn't sleep anymore. And he feared for his country. People like to talk about Jefferson being some kind of an atheist or a deist or he rejected Christ or didn't believe this or whatever, whatever. Jefferson had a huge problem with the hypocrisy in the church and the Jesus Christ of the organized church versus Jesus Christ of the Bible. But on March the 4th, 1805... The president didn't just call the nation to a day of prayer. That's nice. But the president himself led the nation in prayer. He prayed over the nation. There's not been a president in my lifetime that has prayed over this nation. Not even Ronald Reagan. Maybe I don't remember. Did Reagan ever lead a prayer over the nation? Or did he bring some pastor in there in a bad suit to do it? I mean, yeah, praise God, you know, the president called the nation to a day of prayer a week or so ago. And then you go to his office and he's surrounded by a bunch of people in bad suits with their hands on top of them. Some of them rank heretics, like Paula White. And then you've got some Baptist preacher leading a you know, prayer. I mean, okay, okay, it's, I guess it was good or whatever. Sounds like what you hear in a mega church. There's a distinct difference between that and these days. When the presidents themselves led in prayer. Look what Jefferson prayed over the nation. I'm just going to read this prayer for you. The president just didn't call for a day of prayer. He prayed. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable ministry sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one unified people, the multitude brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. Endow with thy spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law, we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. All of which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There is a distinct difference between that and what we see in the White House today. Big difference. 
Oh, praise God you called a national day of prayer. But there's a big difference between a president who will pray himself and the one who will just sit there with a bunch of hands on his shoulders, some of which are rank heretics. Mm-hmm. Guys, I'm th- I, I cast my vote on November in November, and I don't make any apologies for it. But if you think that Donald Trump is going to make America great again, you are a fool. Globalism will take over this world. It's written. There may be a reprieve. We can thank God for certain things, but don't put your faith in these men. It's not the caliber of what founded this country. Donald Trump isn't even worthy to tie the shoe of a man like Jefferson. Not even close. Don't kid yourselves. You know, we can go to we can go to bed thankful that we don't have to look at that devil witch every day on the TV. Thankful I didn't have to pay a health care penalty. We can be thankful for those things. But this nation is doomed. And it's doomed because the very things that Jefferson asked God to save this nation from, we have embraced. You don't want to know what the problem of America is? Violence, discord, confusion, pride, arrogance, every evil way. That's the problem. The things... In our country, our presidents used to ask God to save us from these things. Now they're involved in it. Mm-hmm. Now they ignore it. That's the problem. The problem in America, God doesn't send hurricanes because of the gays. The gays and the trannies and the abortion. Those are all symptoms of violence, discord, confusion, pride, arrogance in every evil way. Those are the problems for which God sends judgment upon this country. God's judgment against, is against our violence in the streets and against one another, against our discord, against our confusion. Our confusion is that we deny God is just. We deny that God judges anything. That's confusion. It's against our pride and our arrogance. These things are manifested in our attitudes about homosexuality transgenderism and drugs and all this. Those things are symptoms of the greatest problem. The least of the homosexual's problems is his sexual preference. That's the least of his worries. The Bible says if we break God's law in one place, we're guilty of breaking all of it and we deserve hell. But God does send judgment. And a president that had the guts to pray over the country in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, that kind of throws a monkey wrench into the Narrative that he was an atheist. Atheists don't pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, neither do deists. But that sums it all up. We deserve God's judgment. We need to pray for our president. Thankful that we don't have in there what was in there, but realize that there's a host of forces aligned against him and that these forces are orchestrated of God, just like Pharaoh was, to bring judgment upon this world. This world is going in a direction that cannot be changed. And men continue to worship in the temples of the universities and in the temples of the sports stadiums with their heads in the sand. Too blind, confused. And yet these women preachers want to say God doesn't give up on people. I believe God's given up on America. It's over. There's a remnant, and the only reason he stays his hand is because of that remnant. But once that remnant, once the church is taken out of this world, there is no more restraint. Hell's going to break loose.
Heavenly confirmation we have here in verse 4. Peter and John and James heard the heavenly confirmation, but I've reminded here at the very end something Peter said in 2 Peter. Talking about just the heavenly witness, which we see here. 2 Peter 1, and I'm going to end. 2 Peter chapter 1, 17-21. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. He's talking about Christ at the transfiguration. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter's recalling this eyewitness account. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Peter said, man, I heard the voice from heaven. Look in verse 8 19. We have also, though, a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter heard a heavenly confirmation, but what he said was more sure than even that was the written Word of God. You know, these people that talk about who God is and make judgments based upon experience throw out the most sure word of prophecy. And the most sure word of prophecy, even more sure than this witness we've read about answering from heaven, is what's been written down. These things we preach in terms of the future are sure because the Word of God is sure. It is a more sure word of prophecy. So don't tell me the Bible's just written by men. It's the surest word of prophecy we have. It's the only thing that can slow down the wrath. It's the only thing that can save. It's the only thing that can fix the heart of man. The written Word of God. The printed Word of God. That's why we got to get it out. That's why we got to get it out. We got to get it in people's hands. Because red hats aren't going to make America great again. Donald Trump's not going to make America great again. The fake Republicans, who are the biggest hypocrites of all, are not going to make America great again. I lost a lot of faith in our president when he sat down with those wicked demon cats last week. People that have said the most horrible things about him and about the people that voted for him. And he sat down with them and fraternized with them. I'm not happy about that. And no, I don't believe that he's some great strategy, strategician that's playing four different levels of chess. I don't believe that. God's judgment's upon this country. Not everything he does is right, and not everything he does is some smart move that's going to fool everybody. If you believe that, then you believe God's judgment's not upon this country. It's a shame. You vote for somebody, he goes in there, he does what he does to benefit his family and establish friends in the back and to fraternize with the most wicked people on, in Washington. Shame on him. Doesn't mean I won't pray for him. Doesn't mean I don't have any hope. Doesn't mean I'm not thankful for the good things that God's used him to do. But make no mistake, people. The only one that can do the things we believe and want a president to do is King Jesus. Monarch Jesus, King. This world needs a king with absolute authority because it can't handle democracy. can't handle it. When there's not a righteous king on the throne, democracy or a republic is the next best thing. But the next best thing is a far cry from a government 
in which the ruler is righteous and holy and is not influenced by bribery and sin and he's consistent and immutable. That's what we got to be looking for. Do our duty. Be a light for the gospel. Get out the more sure word of prophecy and labor and pray that God will use it to save people so that they can be redeemed from this wrath that's coming. The written word, the printed word, that's what we've studied today. That's what we need to get out. And that's why this evening I'm heading out. Be on the road for a few weeks and my objective is to get as many copies of the printed word into the hands of as many people as possible. The Jews first and also to the Gentiles. It's called coal portage work. And I'm thankful and humbled to be a coal porter. Let's all be that in some way this week. And let's continue to pray for our president in the spirit of that prayer that Jefferson prayed years ago. God can save him. There's a lot more hope for him than there are for any other politicians in Washington. And let's pray God will save him, that he'll silence the, the counsel that's coming into his ears, that God will do to that counsel, that counsel and those counselors what he did to Ahithophel in the Old Testament. And that God will be merciful and use whatever respite we have to save more people before it's finished. The nation's finished, but God's not finished with individuals. Until that trumpet sounds, He's building His church. And Jesus said the gates of hell itself would not prevail against it. God's given up on the nation, I believe, but not on the people, not on the individuals. There is a time when He does give up, unlike this foolish woman, this stupid woman, preacher, bishop. Give me a break. But thankfully, the days of God giving up the vials, the judgment, not today. Today's the day of salvation. So let's go out and preach the Word of God. I'll quit rambling. This is the longest sermon I've ever preached probably. Let's pray over the food. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your Word. I pray you bless the food to nourish and strengthen us, Lord. We pray for our President, God, that you will, that you will save him, Lord, that he would truly take a stand for righteousness and that he'd even be willing to lay his life down for what's true and righteous if it means doing so. Lord, that uh, we would be those who'd be willing to... You know, one of your martyrs in the, in, in, in the early church said, you know, Pastor, the whole world is against you. And his response was, well, then I guess I'm against the whole world. May that be his attitude, Lord, and may it be ours. Insofar as we stand for truth, pray you'd have mercy upon this country. We, we understand your judgment. We can't complain when the storms come and the earthquakes and the economic troubles. We can't complain, Lord. We deserve it. But be merciful, Lord. We plead for our country as Abraham pled for Sodom. Lord, we plead for our president as well. We pray that you'd bring him to a place where he would have the courage that Jefferson did to pray himself. Call upon Jesus Christ as Lord. For us as the church, Lord, that we would not be in a state of denial concerning your judgment. Lord, but we would take that more sure word of prophecy and in view of what we know to be true concerning your judgment, that we'll put it out there. We'll disseminate it. We'll spread it. We'll sow it. The printed word, the written word in the earth, that it may continue to draw men to you. Lord, one day you will draw all men to yourself. Many will come to you and worship you. The saints, Lord, clothed in righteousness. And the others will come too. They'll be drawn to you. Every knee will bow, even those that hate you, those blaspheme you there at the end of, of, of the world, Lord, when your judgments fall. They're going to bow before you. 
and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Lord, we rest in those promises. You are a righteous God, and um, it's a privilege to be your ambassadors. Thank you for this church body and their willingness to hear truth and the things that you teach us every week. In Jesus' name, amen.